Welcome to Ben Franklin for President, the interview and question and answer podcast presented here by the Interactive History Company to be found at www.interactivehistory.net. I am Kimberly Smith, the program director for the Interactive History Company, and seated next to me is Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Welcome, Dr. Franklin. Thank you very much, Miss Early Smith. It is a pleasure to be here. Dr. Franklin, this is your opportunity to speak about your world and answer questions from members of the populace, I suppose you would call them, and we would call them today your listeners. Well, I had many readers in my time, and occasionally when I told stories or spoke, I did have listeners then, but I was never really much of a public speaker. Today, you're going to be addressing a rather wide public. Let's start with what you think of this forum for the exchange of ideas we now use called podcasts. Uh, It seems to me the 18th century version would be the way that folk used the town square in colonial times. There is a similarity in that if I'm asked a question, I might be able to give an answer to the best of my ability. However, of course, the difference is, is that this is being somehow transcribed in a permanent fashion, and then people can come and pick up the conversation later. Now, this is a bit like sounded letters or, or writing with voices. Um, in my time, it was a miracle to some of the natives populations when one person would record their words and carry them to a native on the other side of the field and read those sounds out and they could hear that other native's thoughts and it was amazing they did not have a written language and so we of course do have books and have had for a quite long time well this is something like that only instead of a newspaper or a book or a novel you're actually hearing my voice and it could be when we are recording it now, it could be years from now. And as was demonstrated by our last episode of a letter from a fellow in New Zealand, obviously it can be heard from around the world. Fascinating and absolutely ununderstandable, but maybe not everyone in the audience today has an exact understanding of how it works anyway. But <laughs> one does not always have to understand how something works to use its usefulness. That's true, and to recognize that it does indeed work, uh, whether we understand the, the technology behind it. But that actually leads me to my next question. How do you think this sort of technology would have been accepted by people of your time? Much of your technology would be accepted about as well as my lightning rod or maybe a little bit before I was born, the time of the Salem witch trials. Uh, I think maybe some of your modern technologists would have been burnt or hung. Oh, dear. Uh, uh, But luckily, you've become a bit more enlightened. Um, So most people would be confused by it. Of course, it it didn't have, what, what is your word, the infrastructure to perform Uh, Back then, we had no harnessed electricity. We didn't have your intranet. Uh, And so the matter that was needed to make this work did not exist. But 
certainly if you had brought uh, one of your MP3 players and plugged it in and, <laughs> and had somebody then be able to listen to hours and hours upon, uh, upon days of music or to see something on one of your um, smartphones, that would have certainly, since they have their own battery supply, would have lasted long enough to certainly amaze quite a crowd. I'm sure Mr. Jefferson would have wanted to buy one. <laughs> I, uh, from what I hear of Mr. Jefferson, that's probably true. There is a famous writer in the 20th century, just a century back, who wrote that any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Quite a quite a sensible Person. statement. He, he sounds like a marvelous man. Indeed, that was Sir Arthur C. Clarke. He was a British science fiction writer. You were quite the businessman. Um, it has been speculated that were you more than a guest in our century today that you would have a business on this forum, sometimes called the web or the Internet? Do you believe that would have been the case? Well, I do not have a perfect understanding of this technology, but from what I gather, actually... I don't know if I would. Um, many of my inventions I gave away. I never patented the lightning rod, the stove, the bifocals, or the glass harmonica because I wanted that good to go out. I was truly what my interest was in seeing was the betterment of the general population. And so this intraweb, or internet, as you call it, would have been a, an ideal source for me to simply help produce information that other people might find of use. Uh, something like a master library, as it were, that people could access universal information in universal ease of access. And that, I think, would have been a marvelous thing. And I certain that I would have been able to make shift for myself as far as business goes with some of my other works. You still do have printers today, you know. Well, that's true. And in fact, a number of our largest newspapers uh, around the world now produce their papers their news on the internet. I imagine that cuts down on having to buy old rags to make into new linen paper to print them on. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, although they do actually do uh, print their papers, uh, it's my understanding that fewer people are buying them, which becomes somewhat problematic. Well, if you do not provide a service that people wish to purchase, then perchance you should look at doing a new business. But there are always certain businesses that are necessary information, entertainment, certainly, uh, of course, food and shelter being two of the essentials that have never escaped the want of man. Dr. Franklin, what philosophies from your time would have expected, you would have expected to expire by our time to be replaced with something better? And, and what ideas did you have that you thought were eternal? Oh, my. This is a, truly a question for a philosopher, and I will we try could, my best. We could start with the first part. Um, Doctor, what, uh, what philosophies from your time would you have expected to expire by our time? Well, certainly slavery was on my mind as mm. one of the final issues that I was wrestling with when I died. Um, I was a slave owner when I was younger, but I did become an abolitionist when I realized it was wrong. We certainly, many of us, most of us, re recognized that slavery could not continue. You cannot simply control a growing population of the earth any more than Britain and Ireland could control the continent of the United States. Slavery as a philosophy and as a way of life had no place in a future. So, some of us, including Mr. Jefferson, tried many times to institute legislation or policies that would eventually eradicate our country of it, but we failed and eventually had to give that work to future generations. And I understand the price of dealing with that was 
quite high in your civil war. Indeed it was. But other philosophies, well, you know, sometimes they didn't work out. But we, Mr. Jefferson stated this very well. That he thought that of uh, the religious uh, interests of the people of the United States would, in about 20 years after the founding of the country, uh, that everyone would become a Unitarian. That he felt that the common principles of mutual respect would be so bold and so well-received that all other religions would simply fade away. Uh, mm-hmm. I understand that there still is a Unitarian religion, but that the other religions are still holding on, and indeed, new ones are being formed. Yes, that's true, and and I think that his uh, Mr. Jefferson was perhaps being idealistic in his expectation that the Enlightenment would uh, would enlighten all, and not, in fact. Uh, produce a sort of uh, pendulum swing against uh, the liberality that uh, represented by Unitarianism. Well, calling Mr. Jefferson an idealist is certainly not an insult. I think he would embrace and welcome that compliment. <laughs> but uh, other philosophies, I mean, there was a, there were some of the aspects of the Junto, my, my group of young men that were trying to improve things, and the idea of betterment of the community for the community, I think that that was would be one of the secondary ones, a philosophy we would hope would maintain and, and return. The power of education to free the human mind, the fact that um, it was my hope as an, a man of the Enlightenment that whatever country I stepped foot in, if that was an enlightened country, I would feel at home. I'd hope that those philosophies would still stay. The idea, certainly, of family and the, the love of children and the need for shelter. These things, are, I, I would think, would be never changing. But some of the ideas of ownership, uh, the ideas of land rights, and uh, some of our ideas, we saw a beginning of of a belief in people we did not really consider as people, people we did not consider proper to have a vote, uh, to own property, to have a say in their own lives, which included women and, of course, our slave populations and other people from other races that we had over here at the colonies, um, that they were being held aside from society. They were not considered part of society. They were just part of our world. These things, perchance, were predicted to go away, or at least hope so by many people. Abigail Adams, um, wife of your uh, your constituent, no, not your constituent, your cohort. No, wait a minute, not your cohort. <laughs> your, Companion. Your, your, <laughs> your fellow member of Congress. A man frequently wise, always an honest man, a true patriot, but just in some things and sometimes completely out of his senses. Yes, I've heard that as well and and read it uh, a number of times. Um, You're not the only one to think so. Uh, But his wife, uh, Abigail Adams, actually wrote to her husband and and insisted that he not uh, forget the ladies, I think was how she she put it. This was an argument that I took up even when youngs, perhaps a little bit for argument's sake, but I recommended in some of our discussions in the Junto that women be educated, at least the point of accounting and, and something's besides simply music and dancing and how to present themselves and how to look good. Uh, this is something that you know, I found the female mind to be most fascinating. Indeed, most of my closest friends were indeed female, and I entrusted them with a great deal of my thinking and listened to their advice. I found not only an intelligent audience, but a very willing population to be able to share with me their thoughts, and I, I benefited greatly from that practice. 
Well, we're very glad that you did. I, I have another question. What would you take back with you from the 21st century to your time? What invention, what new understanding, if you could choose one? Well, I think certainly some of your common understandings of health care, uh, such as simply that cleanliness really was important in surgical procedures. Uh, it was not believed in my time, indeed, until I think through a good section of your Civil War that uh, doctors needed to cleanse their hands between op operations. That indeed, by simply keeping wounds clean, by using clean dressings on the band you know, for bandages, that you could prevent a great deal of disease. The issue, of course, we had no idea of microbiology. We had no idea of what germs were, but we did suspect indeed that, for example, I wrote several papers on the fact that I thought colds would not caught from the cold, but from other people who had colds, and that the close proximity and the shut windows during the wintertime is what spread those diseases, and that if one simply kept a, a goodly supply of fresh air coming in and stayed away from others that, that you could maintain much better health. So if I could not bring anything physical back, it would be simply the understanding of how to prevent those unclean practices that people uh, took to part in. And that, I think, alone would save countless lives. Well, I, I certainly think that uh, taking back an idea would uh, certainly not overflow your luggage uh, in your on your return journey. It would be easier to carry back with you than, uh, than any sort of, of technology that might be dependent on other technology and other ideas that have not yet, had not yet been discovered. And another, another item from uh, f just a little while after my time that I've found great fascination with is the bicycle. I mentioned this before in one of the earlier podcasts. The delightful invention, returning much good for giving the, the rider health. It's a little bit like a horse, but easier to maintain. But certainly many of, of your, your knowledge of where things are located, your GPS, uh, but that, of course, requires your satellites. Uh, we certainly understood the concept of satellites. Uh, there, you know, that we understood that the moon was our satellite, and we understood, you know, that certain other objects in space, and certainly people satellited around uh, each other. Uh, this is an, a very ancient concept. But the idea of being able to put something into orbit, this is something we could not have conceived upon. But certainly the ideas of communication, the ideas of, of just the worth of maintaining our integrity, that the fact that we can defeat legalized slavery, uh, we can defeat a mass starvation by proper agricultural methods, we can defeat so many diseases by, by simple methods. And then where would we have advanced to? Uh, it was, certainly would have liked to have brought back a little bit of the idea of uh, more advanced electrical theory. As I understand it, in the early 1800s, some of the first light bulbs were being experimented with uh, long before your Mr. Edison or Mr. Tesla. So we had no idea what we were going to do with electricity. We just knew that it should be experimented with. In, indeed, you, you almost played with electricity more than you actually put it to work. Is that, that's my yeah, understanding. Yeah, we, we were able to do some things like fire a cannon and kill and roast a turkey and, <laughs> and heat up beer. Well, a peculiar British affectation. Um, but yes, we, we kind of wondered if it would, it would ever be of use. Uh, we, we, we could toy with it, although sometimes it was like toying with, with a bull in the field in that it sometimes came back to butt you. <laughs> it landed me on mine on more than one occasion. 
Indeed. Well, that sounds like the uh, the subject of another podcast, perhaps. But for now, I, I need to thank you, Dr. Franklin, for visiting with us. Uh, we will take a short break, and then we will be back with the presenter of Dr. Franklin, actor and scholar G. Robin Smith. The way to see by faith is to shut the eye of reason. As pride increases, fortune declines. Drive thy business, or it will drive thee. A rich rogue is like a fat hog, who never does good till as dead as a log. The most exquisite folly is made of wisdom spun too fine. A full belly is the mother of all evil. Wise men learn by others' harms, fools by their own. The proof of gold is fire, the proof of woman, gold, proof of man, a woman. Ben, you've got a letter. And now, a letter from Dr. Franklin. This to James Reed. On differences between man and wife. Saturday morning, 17 August, 1745. So Ben and Deborah would have been married for 15 years by now. Dear Jemmy, I have been reading your letter over again. And since you desire an answer, I sit down to write you one. Yet, as I write in the market, it will, I believe, be but a short one, though I may be long about it. I approve of your method of writing one's mind, when one is too warm to speak it with temper. But being quite cool myself in this affair, I might as well speak as write, if I had an opportunity." Are you an attorney by profession, and do you know no better how to choose a proper court in which to bring your action? Would you submit to the decision of a husband a cause between you and his wife? Don't you know that all wives are in the right? It may be you don't, for you are yet but a young husband. But see on this head the learned coke that oracle of the law in his chapter to Jure Marit Angle. I advise you not to bring it to trial, for if you do, you will certainly be cast. Frequent interruptions make it impossible for me to go through all your letter. I have only time to remind you of the saying of that excellent old philosopher Socrates, that in differences among friends, they that make the first concessions are the wisest. And to hint to you that you are in danger of losing that honor in the present case, if you are not very speedy in your acknowledgments, which I persuade myself you will be when you consider the sex of your adversary. Your visits never had but one thing disagreeable in them. That is, they were always too short. I shall exceedingly regret the loss of them unless you continue, as you have begun, to make it up to me by long letters. I am, dear Jemmy, with sincere love to our dearest Suki, your very affectionate friend and cousin, B. Franklin. 
Again, to James Reed on differences between man and wife, Saturday morning, 17 August, 1745. Welcome back, and welcome G. Robin Smith. Hello, Kimbrick. Well, what have you and Ben been up to lately? Well, we've been very busy. I took Ben to Elizabeth Blackwell Elementary just a week or so ago. Elizabeth Blackwell was the first female to receive her Doctor of Medicine, I believe. And so it was a very uh, neat school to be into. I've been there for the past three or four years, and they're a delight. The students are exceptional and ask very many wonderful questions. But like what, kind, what kinds of questions? They want to know about the relationships that Ben had. They want to know about Katie Ray Green, who was a, a longtime correspondent and an early dear and intense friend of his, although they only met two or three times. Um, they had a, a most marvelous kittenish relationship, very flirtatious. But some people might think it's slightly inappropriate, but I think the fact that they did only meet two or three times would mean that it at least stayed on the on, on, on the page and not in the flesh. But they wanted to know about Franklin's dealings with his son and how that worked and um, exactly how his marriage worked and why he didn't write his uh, to-be wife's more when he was in England. So uh, many questions on the on his relationships as well as some just factual ones such as you know what was how long did it take to sail between England and America and, and things of that sort okay and so what other uh, things do you have going? Oh, um, I've started a series here near the Seattle area of a Shakespeare commentary uh, program where I'm going and giving an introduction to Shakespeare and then going out and seeing Shakespeare in the park. There are several companies here. We're very blessed. Um, and we just saw Macbeth in an abridged version. They, they were able to cut hey. it down marvelously to an hour. And, <laughs> that is amazing. Yes. Um, and, you know, there were some parts, if you know the play, that you would miss. But if you if it was an introduction was a very good um, way of getting an idea of the play without being overwhelmed. <laughs> it was done by Last Leaf Productions, and I admire their their moxie in doing this. And there are several companies here, like I said, that do Shakespeare in the Park. We're going to be seeing many more, and I'll be doing more introduction episode, uh, programs for people. And I hear that congratulations are in order, that you have uh, a publication out on Amazon.com. Is that correct? Well, yes, it's called To Each Their Own, and it is my play. It is an Elizabethan-style play, five acts to about 2,700 lines of iambic pentameter, most of it, or a lot of it, in verse. It is basically written to be slipped into a Shakespeare festival, and unless people really know the Shakespearean canon well, they'll just kind of think, oh, I... That must be one of that's, the minor ones. That's I, one I've never heard before. Yeah, it, one of the reviewers who's given me a, a very sweet review said something, a new play by Shakespeare discovered, and then he kind of, well, not really, it's actually by this guy, G. Robin Smith. Um, and But it's received some high marks from actors, and there is a company in Texas called The Baron's Men, a very interesting Shakespeare company there that's actually sponsored this like one of the Elizabethan troops would have been by a local uh, noble uh, down in <laughs> Texas in, near Austin. And uh, they are looking at it to do a staged reading and other places are considering it as well. I've had a copy requested by a fairly major Shakespeare festival back in Illinois. Wow. So jumping ahead uh, almost a couple of centuries uh, uh, up to uh, Mr. Franklin, you have... 
uh, another performance coming up. I have to have a large one. And if it's passed, please know that we are looking to do more performances of Ben Franklin in your area. And we're happy to travel. But this one will be at, the, at Saddle's renowned ACT Theater. And you're going to be doing... And I will be there on June the 30th, 2012. Uh, three performances. And if you go to the website, ben-franklin.org... Uh, you'll see links to that site if it's still coming up. And if not, then you'll see where I'm going to be at next. Well, you have been busy. Uh, tell us a quick bit about your other um, podcast. I do have um, another one that I'm doing called An Actor's Shakespeare, which is my take single subject podcasts uh, about 50 minutes in length on a single subject of interest, such as all of the parts in Shakespeare that start with the name of Gloucester. And, and, <laughs> and, and, or we may talk about just about iambic pentameter or the authorship silliness or uh, about this particular plays and only drawing 140 lines out of a piece of the play and discussing how those lines could be done. We, so it's kind of just my take of being under the influence of Shakespeare for so long. And it's really why I wrote To Each Their Own was as an exercise to see how long it took possibly as Elizabethan playwright to write a comedy of about 2,700 lines. And I found out that you can get a draft out in about a month and five days. An Actor Shakespeare is also available on iTunes, and I recommend go give it a listen and see what you like and write in with your suggestions. And, and to each their own, this is a play. Is this very Franklin or more Shakespeare? Well, actually, it's very Franklin to try and write like Shakespeare. In the Enlightenment, people believed in imitation. You'll still see this in ateliers, artist schools where they will study the great masters and how they painted, how they sculpted, and duplicate that. And it's a very essence of an excellent education in art, as well as many other things. Certainly in mathematics, you don't start mathematics. Um, you don't create your own By, by st- creating your own symbology or your own theorems, you right. learn the masters first and then say, oh, what about this variation? How might this solve that issue. And then people come up with new theorems once they have the the old ways of thinking kind of down, and then they can challenge them. But certainly uh, Picasso could draw a you know, bowl of fruit. So it looked exactly like the bowl of fruit. He had that skill, but then he wanted to make variations. And so in the Enlightenment, the idea was that you studied uh, Homer, then you tried to write like Homer, and you studied uh, Plutarch, and you tried to write like Plutarch, and, mm. and advancing on Chaucer, and then to Shakespeare and, and other contemporaries. And so I took that and ran with it and decided I wanted to see if I could write an entire Shakespearean or at least Elizabethan style play. And to get prepped for this, I've been I've been writing more than a thousand sonnets over the last many, many uh, years to get the feel for iambic pentameter down and to uh, understand the mindset. And I, it's not perfect, but it's n- neither is my understanding of Franklin. But by getting into their head and writing like they do, and I do the same thing with Franklin as well, By thinking their thoughts, or thinking very similar to to their thoughts, you actually begin, I believe, feel what the next thought might be. And that's when you can start creating new things. When you find yourself in the rhythm uh, and uh, literally the meter of... of uh, I guess in modern parlance, you, you could say that you're really in the vibe or, or something. <laughs> right. But, but uh, uh, So is there somewhere where your listeners could actually find some of these sonnets? If you write me at www.ben-franklin.org and there's a listener comment uh, page there or simply email me at ben at ben-franklin.org dot org then i'll be happy to send you the many links to various podcasts uh, where i'm also guest uh, such as pilar alessandra's on the page where 
uh, which is a script writing consultancy, and she had me as a guest once talking about writing in an historical voice. And the producer of these podcasts, one Aaron Ziegler and his Chop Barb podcast, I'm a frequent um, guest on his show as well. Great. Now, how about uh, your appearance at ACT Theater? You are working with nonprofits on this. Yes, we have advertised this presentation. We've acquired the theater. But what we've done is partnered with six other nonprofits that they are responsible for getting out the audience as well as in addition to our own advertising. And audience members will attend, and if they heard about it from, say, Habitat for Humanity, then they will check off their name on the ballot. If they heard about it from Stella Scola School or uh, North Star or Roots um, Homeless Shelter, then that's the name that they will check off on the ballot. And then we will take all the profits, if there are profits, which we hope there are, and then divide them to these nonprofits according to the number of votes or shares that they are then assigned. So if one group has not done a lot of their advertising, then they may get one or two votes. And if a person, if a group has really gone out and advertised this well through their networking, then if they have 100 shares, then they will get 100 times more. And if we sell out of the three shows, we'll have about $5,000 approximately to distribute. Fabulous. Well, thank you. And, and thank you, listeners. Um, please keep in touch with us via our website at www.ben hyphen franklin.org or via email at ben at ben-franklin.org. Thank you, G. Robin Smith. You're most welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Aaron Ziegler of chopbar.com for producing these episodes and getting them up on iTunes. See also our podcast, An Actor's Shakespeare, single subject podcast, no more than 15 minutes on various aspects of working on, with, and under the influence of William Shakespeare. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs>